Hello and welcome to this podcast series with postgraduate students in the Department of Geography in Maynooth. Um, these are all students who've taken the MA module in Spatial Justice and the students who take that module are not all necessarily coming from geography so we've had students this year from anthropology and media studies and sociology and they're also at different levels so diploma, masters and PhD um, and today we have Paul Goldrick Kelly who is a PhD student currently in the sociology department in Maynooth who's taken the class and um, Paul has been doing some really interesting work around the concept of unequal ecological exchange and how that, um, I guess, how you uh, apply that to Ireland and think about Ireland's um, position within global economic development and within unequal ecological exchange. So what I might do, Paul, is just ask you to um, briefly introduce yourself and maybe say a little bit about how you got interested in the topic. Sure. Uh, thanks, Paddy. As you said, I'm a PhD student. I'm actually I'm coming at this. Um, I'm, I'm pursuing a, a PhD with the Department of Sociology and also with the, the day job in the uh, Nevin Economic Research Institute. And that project really is looking at the idea of carbon lock-in. Um, so it's sort of the idea that, you know, our infrastructures, the structure of the economy in general, social, wider social structures, they sort of evolve together and they were premised on carbon use. And those systems having developed together, they really form a resistance against any effort to shift them. There's an inertia associated with that, that system interacting. Um, so depending on how you frame it, that might explain why, for example, Ireland is considered um, a laggard in terms of climate policy. Maybe we have some of these um, structures interacting that to kind of impede that kind of progress. Um, and what kind of brought me to this topic um, and its sort of relationship to that, that project is usually, um, and particularly, I suppose we can kind of get into this a bit later, but how you kind of measure success and performance in, in policy terms and whether you're, you know, a climate leader or not, it's usually conceived of in pretty national terms. Uh, when you hear of like the, the Irish government's uh, climate emissions targets, they're based on emissions that occur within the territory of Ireland. Um, and of course, we know that this is um, an international issue, um, an international issue that's linked, you know, with the structure of the, the global economy. So if you conceive of that issue internationally, and yes, you're sort of measuring emissions or only conceiving of your response to it in a very small and national way, you're probably missing something pretty fundamental. And that's where I, I think this issue of unequal ecological exchange comes in. It's sort of highlighting the linkages between what, what occurs in Ireland and our sort of role in a global economic system with very uneven uh, distribution of sort of uh, economic and ecological uh, costs and benefits. Great, thanks. That's a really good uh, introduction. And um, I guess then like going back to that idea, which I think is really useful of how there's a kind of a lock-in, you know, between sort of infrastructures and I guess material economies and social structures, you know, unequal ecological exchange, you know, thinks about that in the terms of the evolution or development of global economic um, 
arrangements, which are also infrastructures, also material economies, and also very much, you know, shaped by histories of imperialism and colonialism. So anyway, we're, you know, maybe we should start from the beginning and you could just give listeners a a kind of introduction or overview of the concept of unequal ecological exchange and, you know, things like where, where it originates from, you know, who the key theorists are and, um, and so on before we, we get into its application. Sure, sure. So you could see um, this kind of concept, the, the sort of ecological element of un unequal exchanges, it's sort of, it's a, an extension of concepts that emerged around the middle of the last century. So those that those kind of critical development perspectives were reacting to this was the, the context, uh, context of, you know, the global Cold War. And for many poorer countries, what was sort of promoted uh, by international institutions by, you know, generally kind of Western states was this sort of stages approach to development. Um, we can, I won't go into, you know, the details of those models, but essentially they argue that poorer countries look the way they do because they resemble the poor or the, the richer countries in the past. So the, uh, the poorer countries just have to sort of proceed along a process of, you know, increased uh, competition, markets, etc., And that will lead them sort of to the promised land, really. That will make them, them wealthy. And if you think of things like that, that a kind of principal issue really in terms uh, of um, explaining why a country might be poor it's really about them being insufficiently in integrated into the global economy. They're not sort of involved in international trade and that sort of division of tasks. They aren't uh, involved enough. And um, so obviously the, the policy prescription that comes out of that is um, you should become more integrated, more linked, you know, more um, friendly to kind of capital, etc. And the response to this from uh, theorists who kind of, they came to be sort of known as the dependency at school, they argue actually it's that integration itself. It isn't that poor countries are insufficiently integrated. It's that the terms in which they are integrated into the global economy actually leads to their underdevelopment. So, so you have thinkers from the global south like uh, Prebish and Singer. So they originally uh, come up with a hypothesis that says, and uh, they call it, it's in economics, the terms of trade uh, move against primary commodity exporters. So but effectively what that means is if you have a, a country that's exporting um, raw materials, they tend to import um, processed materials, machinery, etc. And what matters is the relative price of those two things. How much raw materials do you have to export to be able to import some of those goods that you need? And in general, the relative prices of those um, imports into poor countries that are exported by the rich world they tend to become more expensive related to uh, those raw commodities or, or, or raw materials. And those raw materials are made cheaper over time, meaning that you have to export more and more and the, the wealthier world can get these things for far cheaper than, than their exports, but they're relatively advantaged here. And that's also this general idea is picked up by um, Marxist influence theorists, and they argue that actually this, this sort of international system you could think of as divided between these sort of um, uh, exporters of cheap commodities and labor and the rich, rich world. So the rich world uh, represents the core and those other 
uh, countries represent a, a kind of periphery. And the wealthy core extracts value from the periphery by sort of an artificial cheapening of, of those goods, whether it's, you know, through, um, you know, uh, disproportionately cheap labor, labor costs, you know, you think of um, poor uh, wage rates in, in poor countries being much cheaper, resulting in far cheaper commodities that advantages um, the importers of those goods. And that's, you know, thinkers like um, Emmanuel, Amin, Samir Amin, um, Walter Rodney, they, they sort of theorized this as explaining a lot of uh, the poorer world, the global south, so often it's called um, relative position. And this is extended to include an ecological dimension um, by the likes of Bunker and Hornberg, then they argue that actually it's sort of a devaluation as well of the, the kind of natural resources of these poor states that also explains this uh, divergence. And it also kind of incorporates then, as well as sort of exploitation in terms of relatively cheap, um, you know, kind of wage, wage labor, low, low wages paid. There's also an exploitation of the resources and the sort of beyond even just the raw materials, also the capacity of the earth to sort of um, take this, this sort of damage. This is often called, you know, ecological sinks, you know, the, the earth's capacity to recycle pollutants that you put into it. Or, to, or sort of disruption of cycles that disproportionately happens in the poorer world. So as a theory, it, it kind of links internationally. It says that there the benefits of, of, of this, this activity kind of accrue to the wealthy states of the global north, whereas all the costs in terms of ecology and, and the social uh, costs are, are disproportionately inflicted on the, the poor world. Great. That was, you know, a really, really clear overview. Thanks a million, Paul. And I, I guess, you know, it, it also relates, I mean, maybe you could say about, you know, whether it does or not, or the, the extent to, yeah, um, to which this is the case. But the, you know, for, for listeners, I think that idea of the um, costs accruing to, you know, parts of the you know, the global south or third world and the benefits accruing to the global north in terms of climate change, which is another aspect of this unevil, uneven ecological exchange in terms of the atmospheric sink, so not just the earth as a sink. And that idea of a kind of a basic injustice around responsibility for emissions and those places that are more vulnerable to effects of climate change, you know, has been around at least since 1992 in terms of international um, climate governance with the Rio um, summit and the Rio, Rio agreement, the idea of uneven um, responsibilities. So I, like, I, I guess, you know, would you say something about the extent to which, you know, this idea, you've talked about it being around since the 50s, 60s, you know, which was obviously a big moment, not just in terms of the Cold War, but in terms of decolonization and, and these mm -hmm. countries and regions and blocks trying to find a kind of a different uh, path of development, you know, um, beyond capitalism and also beyond socialism, you know, to a certain extent. But um, to to you know, if they've been around, they've they've been there. Like, why is it that, um, or how is it that it's? I mean, it's 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 having a bit of a resurgent now. Resurgence now, maybe would you say an even ecological exchange? Is it? Is it, are there particular reasons for that, or where is that? Where is that energy coming from? Maybe. Yeah, um, as you say, 
part of the, the kind of background, of course, um, was, you know, newly, uh, newly um, sort of post-imperial countries were sort of finding their way in the global system. And I suppose the argument in many ways, um, when they sort of, uh, these dependency theories critiqued what was being offered by the West was essentially, they were saying it was a continuation in economic terms. There's not direct kind of domination involved. There isn't, you know, um, it, it doesn't usually encompass, you know, an army coming in and, and forcible um, extraction of sort of goods and materials, but that, that extraction happens nonetheless. So in the current context, I, I suppose it's, there's the, um, kind of the continuation of that, that despite, I mean, some successes, say, in, in your, uh, the likes of China, it still is the case that the kind of poor world hasn't really um, caught up with the wealthier world. Now, they're, you know, um, notwithstanding kind of, you know, statistics about global poverty, etc., that you can kind of go into and dispute, um, it, it still is the case that we were in a, a a position where you've massive disparities um, between the, the wealthy world and the poor world. And of course, this is coming more to a head, um, as you say, as we're kind of understanding, increasingly understanding, or at least it's becoming more politically relevant, um, I suppose uh, we've understood for a while, um, that we were facing a, a sort of a global uh, climate kind of catastrophe. And the the impacts are already being felt and they're being felt in those countries um, that are sort of that that were um, sort of the the net exporters of these resources in the first place so they both sort of didn't receive the the kind of benefits of this and they're increasingly facing those those um, those costs those are becoming increasingly real to them um, and as you say that's come up that's been coming up for a long time and it's becoming increasingly pressing the idea that well if the global south is to be asked to sort of participate in, the, in this um, kind of move away from um, sort of carbon intensive uh, production, it can't really be the case that we, we, we don't reckon with historic responsibility here. Um, as many researchers have pointed out, emissions are more than, you know, kind of in, uh, in current kind of debates around, say, COP26, we hear, you know, China is, you know, the, the world's leading producer of emissions, and that is true, uh, but that's only recently the case. And we have to remember that carbon dioxide is something that sticks around in the in the atmosphere. It's we're thinking of you know it's filling a, a bathtub as opposed to just you know who who controls the the tap here. And if you look at it in that perspective, most of the damage that's um, sort of brought us to this pass is um, was by the wealthy world. So what we face implicitly, if we only construe this as sort of like oh this is a, a problem of human society or the planet, the wealthy world sort of pulling up the, the draw, the drawbridge or, or the ladder really, um, in terms of living standards saying, well, these living standards that we attained are premised on these kind of um, relationships to nature, this sort of exploitation, but that's not available to you. Um, you have to sort of pursue it um, and face all the costs, costs of that, that transition off your own backs. Even, even as we sort of benefited and uh, that, that, that kind of system actually sort of brought you to the place where you are today, where you remain poor. So it's, I, I think um, it's kind of coming to a head again, really, um, with the issue of climate change has become very, it's become very real and sort of politically present. 
Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with all that. I wonder if we could um, move on to another aspect of what you, you talk about in the, the, the essay that you did, which is something that I'm not that familiar with, and I, I guess I'm always, um, I mean, partly because of my discomfort with it, maybe I'm more, I'm critical of it, but it, there's definitely questions, you know, that we can have around it, is around the kind of measurement of these, mm -hmm. these exchanges. Um, and, you know, you even touched upon it in your opening about the kind of limits of, say, national emissions, uh, the ways in which a lot of environmental accounting and emissions accounting are at a national level, where in fact, you know, things are, are, are much more transnational and globalized and mm -hmm. those kind of boundaries are, are, are not as, as clear-cut. So I wonder if you could say something about efforts to measure uneven ecological exchange and also some of the difficulties with that and limits of that. And I know that you looked at the specific case of Ireland, so if you want to, you can, you, can, you know, um, ground it in that. Sure. Yeah. So the uh, as I sort of uh, mentioned in that introduction, this kind of uneven ecological exchange has both kind of um, the monetary exchange elements as well as uh, an ecological one. Um, now, in certain respects, it, it bracketing the, the the monetary side. If we're looking at, and I focused really in that essay on just simply raw materials. Um, rather than sort of other ecological implications, energy or, you know, um, value. Um, if you look at that, that's often measured in a sort of territorial-based way. And what you tend to do is you look at sort of resources that are extracted nationally within the territory of Ireland, and you add imports and subtract exports. Now, the problem with that kind of accounting is you're only kind of measuring the weight of the, the imports that, that enter, enter the territory. But those imports themselves will have had far bigger upstream effects on, on environments. They required, you know, X many raw materials. And um, if we're talking about, you know, uh, wood, for example, it, you know, depending on where it's from, there's all sorts of ecological damage, raw materials expended in, you know, cutting down that forest, etc. So it's sort of, it, it doesn't give you a clear picture um, of the, the kind of the real resources required to kind of produce what we consume within Ireland. Um, so for that essay, I, I went with so, um, that approach and I looked at the degree to which, okay, if you look at those imports coming in and you adjust them for the real sort of um, ecological impact and you, you, you sort of do that calculation again it, it, Ireland looks like it's it's appropriating material from the global south. It is receiving materials that, um, and it is not. It, it is receiving more materials really than it than it um, exports. Now that that's that kind of um, that framing really kind of leads you to the issue with measurement if you if you're talking about um, values here, um, because obviously as everyone really knows, I'm sure listeners will know. You know, there's the famous um, leprechaun economics issue uh, of the, the last several years. Our national accounts, they're really hard to read and sort of discern in terms of like what, what kind of national activity is based here because so much of it is premised on, you know, the import of massive amounts of intellectual property, lot, lots of tax planning strategies, etc. So to, to really kind of precisely get it, you know, where the kind of flow is coming in and who, who benefits and what's it, what's it associated with in raw material terms, it's, it's complicated in Ireland's case. 
And in many ways, actually, I think, you know, kind of beyond this piece of research, it, it sort of tees things up in an intriguing way to look at the specifics of Ireland. Ireland looks like a very unique uh, place with very kind of complicated uh, relationships with the rest of the world, which should we should, you know, factor into our considerations of climate policy, which is sort of um, our notions of spatial justice and, and what we ought to do and, and what we owe the rest of the world. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that, because I, I definitely feel it's something that's come up in quite a few conversations with um, other students, you know, thinking about the concept of extractivism, for example, um, you know, which is a term more often, you know, associated with parts of the global south and linked to uneven ecological exchange in terms of the the, the sort of extraction of raw, you know, resources or materials that are exported to be processed and consumed elsewhere. But students applying that kind of concept to thinking about Ireland, both in terms of colonial histories around the, the, the agricultural mm. economy, the sort of extraction of, of agri agricultural commodities, and also you could apply that to sort of soil fertility, that being an uneven ecological exchange, the metabolic rift, but also mm. more contem contemporary forms of, of extractivism and leitrim and around, you know, Sitka spruce plantations and... You could say wind as a, a another kind of thing that is, is doesn't necessarily benefit a specific area where the infrastructures are placed, and certainly this question of Ireland being um, strangely placed or difficult to place because it's at once was a a, a colonial periphery. It was part of the, the the British Empire, but then also it is it's clearly part of particularly since the nineties with the Celtic Tiger. You know, it's an advanced economy where there is high levels of consumption and wealth and so on. And I wonder, you know, either connecting it to uneven ecological exchange or just more generally your own thoughts on that. I mean, within the context of debates around Ireland's responsibility internationally. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And as I say, it, it kind of, I think it's a, an area to be developed because it also, like you allude to, um, you know, there's Irish history and that, that still has sort of, you know, kind of echoes. So you could argue in terms of our, our structure as, uh, you know, a, a beef exporter and what that implies in terms of the damages versus sort of where that's consumed in international markets. I mean, that, that the indicator that I, I referred to in the piece and is a real aggregate indicator um, called the uh, raw trade balance. And that's taking, you know, everything we import, looking at its ecological impacts just in sort of net weight uh, versus our, our exports. But that obviously is different. You have different stories for, for different sectors. Um, like looking into the data a bit um, since, um, and this wasn't included in the essay, if you, if you look at, you know, the kind of categories of raw materials within that, um, the primary thing kind of driving um, raw material use in Ireland recently is really building materials. Uh, that's mm. that's where it looks like we have a really significant kind of impact um, on our books, and that that's where you also see it sort of escalate and, and you know act very erratically, which is consistent, you know, kind of with our housing crises and stories. So there's that piece, um, as you say, agriculture. We need to kind of disentangle that because actually, you know, um, this is often argued now to a certain extent. I I think it. it kind of might be overstated, you know, um, if, if the argument sort of amounts to, well, you know, the agricultural sector doesn't need to, to sort of shift to become more sustainable. But it is true 
that if if we you know follow through with this argument and, and say you know we shouldn't think merely about the, the territorial um, you know where emissions kind of occur on a territorial basis but kind of where they consumed um, that would be uh, true of Irish agriculture and of course then as you say even there's kind of issues within the state you know kind of Dublin um, is sort of uh, a net beneficiary of, of this stuff as as most cities are um, again you know where, when we even think through kind of environmental policy and where the kind of pinches it's the kind of classic story in responses that the, these things will disproportionately impact um, areas of the country that aren't urbanized and are, and are also disproportionately poor. And we also see an interaction with, you know, even if we take, you know, agriculture as a sector, that sort of disguises um, kind of inequality within it. Um, I, I, I recall a, a, a statistic saying in a report by Task, I think it was, that, that agriculture was actually the most an unequal sector in terms of income mm. in the state. And um, so even, you know, kind of taking a sector specific approach, we have to appreciate like there, there's a story here with um, the implications for the activity of a small farmer versus, you know, a massive industrial concern, which is an exporter. Yeah. Uh, and the, these kind of issues kind of have to have to be disentangled and they're, they're complex, but I think you, you really need to, to really get a handle on them if we're to, both, I, I think this has a, a kind of a normative element. You know, if, if we think that, you know, people shouldn't be kind of unduly burdened with this, particularly if they're not responsible, if that's a principle you hold, I think it's pretty reasonable. That implies, you know, some kind of onus on us to respond. But there's also, you know, practically, if it is that we're to kind of effectively participate internationally in, in a sort of a global chain, change, we have to we have to sort of get a handle on, on these complicated interrelationships and, and our, our role in a global picture. Yeah, I, I, one thing I might add to that is that there's, there's often this thing of, you know, consumption, let's just keep it with emissions, say consumption of emissions and production of emissions as different ways of measuring it. But um, the, there's a, a nice piece, and obviously he's not the only one who makes this point, but Matt Huber, the geographer, has a nice article called Whose Carbon Footprint Matters? And uh, he talks about, you know, who profits from the emissions. Mm. So, and he gives the example of someone driving an SUV or a Hummer, and they consume the emissions as in they're belching out the exhaust pipe, and they're considered to be responsible. But who actually profits from from that emission? It's the the, the you know the, the fossil fuel companies, the automobile manufacturers, a whole set of, of of much larger actors who sort of have a lot more power in that you know commodity chain or in that you know set of economic relationships and i think that's something we also particularly in ireland have to get better at we think about agriculture the emphasis is on farmers you know as mm. and it's their cows that produce the, the methane but you know any look at the the complexity of the agri-food industry in ireland you know which has developed since the 80s there are a lot of of much bigger actors you know, including shareholders um, in, in companies like Glambia and so on, um, and the processing of milk into all sorts of other products. And the, who profits from those emissions is very different to who actually is farming and producing it at the basic mm -hmm. level. And I think it, to get more sophisticated in, in those, telling those stories, which are not easy, um, I think is a really important part of, of this, this conversation. Um, um, 
Okay, well, we're we're making we're getting through this. We're running out of time already. But I thought um, one one last thing that I guess we could touch on. I mean, we already have touched on, but talk about maybe a bit more directly is the Green New Deal or the Green Deal in Europe, and you know what has emerged, you know, quite powerfully, I guess, with quite a lot of you know energy from the top and also from grassroots, you know, around this quite you know I, I guess you call it a kind of hopeful horizon of something different of this transition um, and it's got a lot of momentum behind it but also lots of different com conflicting visions of what that looks like and I wonder if you could just say something about how unequal ecological exchange and also a spatial justice perspective more generally you know is, a, is really important to interrogating let's say the EU Green Deal and the kinds of ways in which it's progressing and the kinds of assumptions it's based on. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's crucial. That's sort of nearly the, um, what I, I, I think is the, the principal value of this sort of form of analysis for, for kind of environmental campaigners or researchers. It's really the, I, I'd agree with you that the, the, uh, Green New Deal, I wouldn't sort of trash it because I, I think it encompasses a lot. It's it's and it's it you know its meaning is kind of being uh, being fought over, so it doesn't have a, a, a kind of set content. I suppose what this kind of viewpoint would caution against is a viewpoint that might be kind of implied within within it that says, well, you know, um, Ireland could Ireland or anywhere else could you know sort of uh, move to you know technologically modernize and in this way will be kind of uh, we won't be engaged in sort of carbon intensive activities and this represents you know a new source of growth and income to, to our benefit um, but many uh, critical uh, perspectives as you have you know pointed out that this kind of represents you know continuation or entrenchment of kind of more of the same, you know, that, that that's the relationship between, you know, the modernized city and its hinterlands, which are just conceived of as, you know, sources of inputs of raw materials. It also, as I said at the beginning, it, it kind of leads you in many cases to this nationally bounded picture where you think that, well, you know, as, as insofar as uh, we do stuff that cleans up our act, and, we, you know, we move towards, um, you know, achieving those climate targets in Ireland, say, um, then, you know, we've, we've done our bit for the environment. But actually, you know, the, the global picture is much more complicated. And as I say, like, I, I think there's a definite sort of values-based element to this that, that we, you know, it, it's political. It's, it's, it's about kind of how, how we think the, the world ought to be. But there's a practical one, too, that I think that this sort of um, transition, but the, the, yeah, this sort of transition effort or this sort of framing could really kind of obscure the fact that we're, we're simply offshoring um, damaging and, you know, if it's out of sight, out of mind, that, that hasn't solved, you know, it not being counted on Ireland's books doesn't sort of remedy the issue. It has to, it has to be solved kind of globally and we have to, to participate in that process. As I say, it, it, it sort of, if you understand it uh, as the case that, you know, a lot of the wealth that's accrued to the global north has been predicated on exploitation of the, sort of the natural wealth of the poorer world, it also, you know, 
out of that kind of um, follow a lot of um, sort of uh, policy directions, I'd say. So obviously um, a step would be we'd have to sort of redress those flows and stop them. And they are significant. Um, a recent paper um, by Hickel and colleagues actually estimated that the, the kind of value of those flows into the global north as a whole, so that, that's really you know, terminology for the wealthy world uh, versus the global south, they appropriated in 2015 something like 11 trillion um, in value. And this would be in the you know multiple trillions. Of, it might have been in the region of 200 trillion, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, over the course of the period 1990 to 2015. So first, we'd have to remedy those flows if we're to, you know, kind of have a situation that's just and, you know, if, if it's to be a situation where poor countries are to actually have the option to take, you know, an ecologically sustainable pathway to leave those resources in the ground and what have you. Um, so that, that might imply, you know, um, a, a sort of renegotiation of our debt relationships with these, these countries, the terms of international trade, which privilege, you know, low cost, uh, high environmental damage production in those places. And, you know, a, a general kind of sense of um, global solidarity, really, you know, um, that, that we have to kind of, that, that the two kind of issues of, um, you know, social and, and spatial justice and, you know, the practical transition, they're both kind of pulling in the, in the same direction from my perspective. Yeah, th th those are two great points to end on. And I think one other thing I'd, I'd just add to that, you know, which is, you know, I think important to, to know is that those demands that you're talking about, things like ecological reparations, things like, um, you know, debt jubilee, things like, you know, fundamentally changing the terms of trade within global, you know, economic relationships have been demands from movements in the global south both sort of national and then also kind of transnational movements at least since this period of the 50s 60s with decolonization and anti-imperialism but particularly i think about you know the late 80s early 90s when climate change governance was just beginning you know it was demands from those places from those movements that were calling for these things and I think paying attention, more attention to those movements and those places in our academic scholarship, in our activism, rather than always assuming that, you know, it's kind of, again, a kind of a Eurocentric idea that like all the thinking about Green New Deals and all the thinking about transitions comes from from the kind of core. These are these are ideas that have been and demands that have been there for a long time. And thanks so much, uh, Paul, I think that for people who um, are interested in environmental activism, who are interested in transition, Green New Deal, any of these things, you know, uh, having a better understanding of unequal ecological, ecological exchange and related concepts um, is, is going to be invaluable. So I think this is going to be a really useful, useful interview or useful chat to, 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 um, to share that, that knowledge. So thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks, William.